Do take a seat. That is a good day to sing about, isn't it? Uh, and uh, if, that's, if that is new to you, and you'd like to learn it and get more familiar with it, it's on the internet called One Day. Matt Ribman, do uh, dig it up and um, stick it on repeat this week. It'll encourage you, I think. We're in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 19. So do reach for a Bible. You will need to be able to see a Bible. So if you haven't got one with you, uh, there'll be some by the doors as you came in. 2 Samuel, we've reached chapter 19. I think we're about three Sunday evenings left in 2 Samuel. Uh, the context, in, as we pick up in 19, verse 8 and 9, if you remember from last time, is that Absalom's rebellion against his father David, his, uh, his seizure of the throne, or attempted, has failed. Absalom is dead, fallen under God's judgment. God has done what he said he would do back at the beginning of 1 Samuel in chapter 2. He has established his anointed. Now the question is, as we get into 19 and 20, given everything that's happened, is David going to be able to restore the kingdom to its former glory? Can he unite the people under his rule? Let's see what you think the answer is by the end of our reading. It's quite a long one, 19 through to the end of 20. So chapter 19 and halfway through verse 8, under David returns to Jerusalem. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. They'd been on Absalom's side. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the, out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned, Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as, as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. 
and Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. That is Ziba. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please, let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. 
So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of beth Makkah, And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were, who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel, and so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Sheva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. Let's pray together for God's help. Father, we thank and praise you for your word, every word breathed out by you for our help and instruction. Father, we know that the whole of this book speaks to us of the Lord Jesus, and so our prayer simply is that you would show us Christ as we look at David and his struggling kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, sometimes the best way to appreciate something is to compare it with something else. Uh, I lived in a real dive of a student house. It was a converted corner shop. It was dark. It wasn't designed to be lived in. Uh, none of the walls were straight. None of the carpets in the house fitted. And there were mice running through the kitchen. We named one of them Martin. Uh, but living in a house... Uh, like that, had a major upside, on top of all the obvious downsides, there was a major upside, because it meant that every other house that I would then live in from then on seemed fantastic by comparison. And any time in the future that I got a bit uh, gloomy or grumpy about my living quarters, I'd remember that house in Lenton, Nottingham, and realize how good I had it. I think 2 Samuel 19 and 20 if you like, is a bit like that university house, but for God's people. If you like, the house in which the Christian lives today is the church of God, specifically for us. It's, of course, expressed in this local church. And if we're honest, sometimes we can be a little bit grumpy about it, can't we? And we can be grumpy about the church in general. You know, the, the sentences that start with, you know, what's wrong with the church is dot, 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 and then going on to confess all of the church's ills, and, and usually in such a way that doesn't implicate us in the problem. Or, or grumpy about this church in particular, maybe. So uh, perhaps someone sadly decides they want to leave Duke Street, maybe under a cloud, and they talk about, oh, no one's welcoming at that church, or no one believes in evangelism at that church, or there's no spiritual life in that church, or whatever it is. Now, it's maybe not surprising, is it, that we're better at seeing the church's faults this church and the church, capital C, seeing the church's faults than seeing its beauty. After all, most of us are like that with ourselves. Maybe you're the exception, but I think most of us, you know, when we look at in the mirror in the morning, we probably don't look at it and think, wow, I look fantastic. Do you? I mean, most of us are better at spotting the things we don't like, aren't we, than the things we do. That's probably true when it comes to the church. But there is a a kind of negativity about Christ's church that becomes a problem, a, a kind of negativity, a kind of critique that implies that the coming of the Lord Jesus, that the return of the Lord Jesus from the dead in resurrection power, and then the outpouring of his spirit from his throne in heaven has made no difference whatsoever to the people of God. That we're no better off than if Christ hadn't risen from the dead or ascended to the throne and taken up his role as Lord of the church. Now that can't be right, can it? No, it's true. Do I need to say this? The church isn't yet perfect. We know that. We're part of it. But the coming of Christ, the rule of Christ, and the outpouring and the giving of his Holy Spirit simply must have made a difference in the life of the church. And one of the ways that we see that difference is when we compare, if you like, the people of God today with the people of God in places like 2 Samuel 19 and 20. Here's the house in 19 and 20 in which God's people used to live. And it's grim. Just remember where we are in, in their history. Absalom, as we said, his rebellion is over. And the way has been cleared for the return of the king but he's returning to a deeply divided people. All Israel, remember, had switched to Absalom, and, and the big question here is this. Can the return of the king unite the people under the rule of the king? Can David 
help Israel to reclaim its former glory? Can David even usher in the promised glorious kingdom of 2 Samuel chapter 7? I think you know the answer already, but we're going to see it in the passage. Let's answer the question in two scenes, one for each chapter, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about the church today. So first heading, chapter 19, the return of the king. Now we find them in chapter 19, verse 9, at squabbling over the monarchy. A complicated situation for them. Remember, David had been their king, then they'd uh, committed treason, basically, and uh, turned to Absalom, but now Absalom is dead. So is David their king again? Should they bring him back to the throne? It seems they couldn't agree. Now we can understand if they were anxious about the prospect. Monarchs who have been de- deposed and then restored tend, as a rule, not to treat rebels with all that much kindness. But it's striking that in verse 13 of chapter 19, have a look down, David immediately takes one of the chief rebels, a man called Amasa. He was, remember, Absalom's former commander, and he gives him the top job. He makes him his own commander of the army. Now, how Joab is going to feel about being summarily ditched and replaced with Amasa, we'll we'll come back to in chapter 20. But it works a charm with the men of Judah in verse 14. David we learn, swayed the heart of all the men of Judah. Amasa was one of their own, after all. And so was David, for that matter, wasn't he? He was a man of Judah. He's determined to win his own tribe back to himself. And those early signs are quite encouraging, aren't they? He seems to have the ability to bring people under his rule. So David makes his return to the capital, and along the way, he meets a series of people that we've met before. Again, it's a bit of a a two Samuel revision test, isn't it? These names. Can I remember who these people are? First, Shimei or Shimei. Say it as you like. Remember him? The one who had been taunting and cursing the king as David left his capital? Not anymore. He's a changed man, apparently. Verse 8, we learn he, he falls down at David's feet, he admits his crime, and he pleads for mercy. Your servant knows that I have sinned. And we wonder is this genuine or is this just self-preservation. It's hard to say in truth, but David's response is gentle and forgiving. You shall not die, verse 23. This is promising. Maybe David really can reunite the people under his rule. And then, verse 24, we meet Mephibosheth. Remember him, the grandson of Saul, lame in both feet? The last time we heard Mephibosheth's name... Zeba was persuading David that Mephibosheth had betrayed him and gone over to Absalom. And that, it turns out, we learn here, was a load of nonsense. Quite the opposite. Verse 24, Mephibosheth's been in mourning since David's exile. He hasn't had a haircut. He hasn't looked after himself. He hasn't even washed his clothes. He's been in mourning. And so he throws himself upon the goodness of, of David the king. And given how David has responded to Shimei, of course, now we're, we're anticipating some kind words from David. But David's response is strange, isn't it? What do you make of it there in verse 29? Have a look. This is a man, remember, who's been wronged. He's been slandered by Ziba. Verse 29, the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Comes across as harsh, uncaring. Something off about it. And so we begin to wonder, well, can this king really unite the people? Now, things go better with uh, geriatric Barzillai in verse 31 to 39. But verse 40 is not very encouraging, isn't it? 
uh, is it? Have a look at verse 40. Second half of verse 40. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Half the people of Israel. And we're thinking, where's the other half? Why were they not there to welcome the king back? It turns out they weren't very happy about David's cozying up to the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Judah cozying up to David. In verse 41, they accused Judah of trying to claim the king of their, as their sole possession rather than acknowledging him as king over all the people. And Judah's official response is not exactly the model of diplomacy, is it? Verse 42, they brought the king back, verse 42, because the king is our close relative. Well, I mean, it's true, but maybe not very wise. Not a very unifying thing to say. And so by the end of chapter 19, for all David's attempts to reunite the people on his return, they seem to be just as divided as they were before. And if we've been listening carefully through to Samuel... That won't surprise us. Because we know, don't we, by now, that for all of David's strengths, he's proven to be a deeply flawed man, a flawed king, a man in some ways just like any other, infected with the same spiritual disease as the very people he's trying to rule. One of the big TV shows at the moment is called The Last of Us. It's um, based on a video game. And it follows the classic zombie storyline, though apparently the cast and crew were forbidden from using the Z word. They're not zombies, they're the infected. I don't know what the difference is, really. But you can sort of guess roughly how it goes without too many spoilers. You know, the parasite infects more and more people, the world is gradually destroyed, and the tension is whether anybody's going to survive. Presumably that's something to do with the title. Now, in one sense, it's just a bit of sort of fiction and fun, but one of the reasons those stories resonate is surely because they speak to a deeper truth about the human race. That when it comes to the human race, we're all infected. When it comes to sin, we're all infected. None of us are immune. And that's why, as David demonstrates in 2 Samuel, pinning ultimate hope on any man-made solution, anything that comes from within the system, is doomed to fail. Now, the world won't be saved by education because all the teachers and all the students are infected. Now, the world won't be saved by brilliant politicians because all the politicians are infected. The world won't be saved by, ultimately by NGOs or aid workers or philanthropy or winning a culture war or any other solution, if you like, from within the system. The system can't be saved by anything within itself because the system is infected from top to bottom. It's why, isn't it, in 2023, we're no closer to realizing John Lennon's hopelessly naive dream, imagine all the people living life in peace. Missiles continue to fall in Ukraine because all the people are infected with sin. Now, it doesn't mean that Christians don't work to improve things, of course not, or get involved in politics as we were thinking about a little bit this morning, or, or giving to charity, that's a good thing to do, but, but that can never be where the Christian pins their ultimate hope for an infected world. Their ultimate hope can only ever be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the twist in that uh, TV show, The Last of Us, and uh, this isn't a spoiler because you find out in the first episode, is, is that out of all of the human race, uh, there's one girl being discovered who is immune to the virus. And the rest of the plot seems to be trying to figure out how to get her, get her immunity out to everyone else to save them from the not-zombies infected. 
I mean, that's a very pale imitation, isn't it? But it's a pale imitation of the Christian hope, the one person immune to the infection, a, a heavenly king, a king sent from, if you like, outside the system, coming into the system, into our world, and giving up his life for our healing. And the Christian hope for our battered and broken world can only ever be in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that, but let's finish the story together. Let's whiz through chapter 20 and look at the return of the, Christ, the kingdom with a deliberate question mark. Is this it? The chapter 20 is a, a catalogue of problems that David simply can't fix, basically. He, he can't stop Israel joining Sheba's rebellion there in 20 verses 1 to 2, blowing his trumpet and rallying all Israel to his cause. We, He's decided he wants nothing more to do with David's kingdom. There's nothing in it for him. And, and apparently much of Israel agrees, verse 2. All the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba. And David can't stop it. Nor can he undo Absalom's sin. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Those poor abused concubines there in verse 3. These poor women who've been so humiliated on the roof by Absalom. And they're probably... Uh, locked away by David for their own protection, but it is terribly sad, isn't it? They were shut up until the day of their death, verse 3, living as if in widowhood, as if David just doesn't know what else to do. He can't put back together what sin has destroyed. He can't do it. Nor can he control Joab. And Joab is an absolute liability, isn't he? If we wondered what he'd made of being sacked in favor of Amasa. We find out in chapter 20. Uh, David sends um, another lieutenant, this man Abishai, to hunt down Sheba's rebellion and stop it before it gets going. And, and Joab, we learn, goes with him. He, he meets Amasa in 20 verse 8. He pretends to be his best friend. He leans in to kiss him in friendship, and he thrusts a sword into his stomach, killing him in a single blow. Unfortunately, this is vintage Joab. No principles. Violence is the answer to everything. It's a treasonable act, killing David's appointed commander, but Joab doesn't seem to care. And he even has the gall to, to claim that he's acting for David. So, verse 11, he, he posts one of his aides by Amasa's dead body, urging the people to follow David's man, Joab. You know, if you're with David, now you need to follow Joab. And when people understandably stop at the sight of Amasa's corpse and wonder what on earth is going on, Joab's men just throw the body into a ditch, problem solved. So off goes Joab hunting down this man Sheba. He reaches the place Sheba is hiding and he proceeds to destroy it. Abel um, apparently was a peaceful town, a place you went to get good advice. Joab doesn't care. There, there he is merrily battering down those walls. Violence is the answer. And out comes a woman, reasons with him, talks him down, delivers Sheba's head over the wall, and Joab returns to Jerusalem to tell David. He is a wrecking ball. And what's notable in chapter 20 is that David is utterly powerless to control him. And so by, by verse 23, we learn that Joab has strong-armed his way back to the top job. See that, verse 23, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, despite David's express intention to replace him. All it took was a little bit of violence. 
I mean, that is one avenue, isn't it? If you really want to bring about unity, if you want to really keep people together, that's one way of doing it, isn't it? By sheer force. Crush those who stand in your way, whether it's literal missiles into Ukraine or, or verbal missiles fired across Twitter or across a church meeting. Joab is a very modern man. And that brings us to this summary paragraph there at the end of chapter 20. It's a summary of David's kingdom. It's the, the second um, kingdom summary in the book. And there was one earlier in chapter 8 when things were going significantly better. Now let me show you them. First, the summary in chapter 8, and then we'll have a look at the summary here in chapter 20. And just play, spot the difference. All right, see if you can see the difference between these two. So here's the first one from chapter 8. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Right, that's, that's the summary in chapter 8. That's when things were going significantly better. Let's have a look at the next one, chapter 20. Here's the one we're looking at now. What's the difference? Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was the recorder, and Shaver was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. Right, well, what did you notice? In the later summary, no mention of David. Interestingly, he's still king, of course, technically, but the first name on the list is Joab, that man of violence. What else is missing? Any reference to justice and equity. Those aren't words that can be used to describe David's kingdom anymore. And something's appeared that wasn't there before. Did you spot that? Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Now, that's not the language of a happy, united, and willing kingdom, is it? You see the point being made here? The king has returned after a fashion. But he can't return the kingdom to its former glory. He can't restore the damage that his sin and the sin of his offspring has caused. No one from inside the system ever could. Okay. Well, what does this all mean for us? Well, we began, didn't we, by thinking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of us here have been in churches all of our lives, and over time, we know that it can become ordinary and mundane, just another group of people. But when you compare Christ and his church, the fulfillment, the partial at least fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, and David and his kingdom, we realize there's nothing ordinary about Christ and his church. There's nothing ordinary about Christ, the leader. The Lord Jesus Christ is utterly unique. Haven't, haven't every page in 2 Samuel been showing us that? Jesus shares none of the flaws, none of the infection of his father David. There are reasons to be skeptical about every other leader, but not about the Lord Jesus. He is the only one truly trustworthy with power. He's the only one able to heal infected people. And that's why his church isn't ordinary either. 
the church of Christ is a miracle. Now take, for example, its unity. It's a big theme in 2 Samuel 19 and 20. Take the unity of the church. Look, take this church. We're not perfect, are we, in expressing our unity together? But where else would you find it, such a diverse group of people genuinely united? And not united by sort of Joab-like force, but by the, the love of Christ. A genuine love from him, for him, and for each other. You can find uh, groups that have a sort of artificial unity that lasts just as long as everyone agrees on everything, or, or you can find groups with that Joab-like unity forged by force, intimidating people into towing the line. But we disagree on all sorts of things here. Some of us are, I'm not going to get a show of hands, but some of us are politically more to the right and some of us are politically more to the left. Some of us uh, really like Marmite and other people are wrong. Uh, some people like, uh, think that hymns are old and boring, and other people think that hymns are rich and vital. We're old and young, we're male and female, we're richer, we're poorer, but we're all genuinely one in Christ. In the language of Ephesians 2 verse 15, Christ has created in himself one new man, that is one new person, in place of two, so making peace. Peace with God, peace with each other. We've been fused together by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so much so that Paul in Galatians 3.28 can even say that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Even those major fundamental identities take second place to the unity and togetherness that we've been given in Christ. And we are one willingly, aren't we? There's no forced labor here. C.S. Lewis famously described himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. And we know what he means. But he would agree that there are actually no truly reluctant converts to Christ. No one is forced to join his kingdom. By the power of his spirit, he wins them to himself. He shows them the beauty of his love and grace and kindness, the goodness of his kingship and rule, until they happily and joyfully say, that is good. He is good. I want to belong to him. And that then issues, doesn't it, in joyful labor and service. We were studying Mark 10 in our fellowship groups this past week, and one of the questions asked, what would a church committed to serving one another look like? What would a church committed to serving one another in the pattern of Christ look like? And I thought, this church. And look, not perfectly, but wonderfully. Not begrudgingly, but joyfully. Busy people sacrificing their time and energy to serve the church family. No pride, no, that's beneath me. Humble servants in the likeness of their humble and unifying king. One of the joys of church life is stumbling across members secretly serving one another in love. No one's forcing them to do it or paying them. It's what happens when your leader is the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a miracle. It's the one place on earth today that Jesus' rule is made visible. And yes, we're not perfect. And yes, we long for Christ to come again and bring to perfection the restoration of his unified kingdom. 
to make us the people that we long to be. But what a difference the Lord Jesus and his spirit have already made. To repurpose a quote from John Newton, we're not what we ought to be, we're not what we want to be, we're not what we hope to be in another world, but still we're not what we once used to be, we've seen that haven't we, and by the grace of God we are what we are. 2 Samuel 19 and 20 is what David could do, the best he could do. But the church is a taste of what Christ can do and what one day gloriously, perfectly, he will do. What a privilege it is to be part of it. And what an opportunity. So let's resolve together with his help to be the church he's calling us to be and to know increasingly the life-changing power of his rule among us and over us, to be a church marked by justice and equity and unity and love, a family where Christ's rule and kingdom is put on public display. And as that happens increasingly among us, may the world around us take notice and may all the glory go to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at the struggle that David had to reunite and restore his kingdom back then, we want to thank you for our returning Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for his return from the dead in resurrection power, his ascension to the throne, the outpouring of his Holy Spirit into our hearts, and the restoration work that he is already doing in the church. We long to see the day when that restoration project will be made beautifully complete. And we pray that you would help us to think rightly about the church today. Deliver us from the kinds of things that we see in 2 Samuel 19 and 20. Deliver us from violence, physical or verbal. Help us to preserve and display that beautiful unity, one for us at the cross. And may the world see in us and in our life together the glorious rule of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. 